I'm Michaela Lieberman. And I'm Jeff Bellin. Welcome to Office Hours. Today on the program, we've got uh, Professor Tara Grove, who is one of our stars here at William & Mary Law School. She teaches constitutional law, federal courts, statutory interpretation, civil procedure. She does it all. There's not one thing that she couldn't teach. And has a, a really distinctive, I think, classroom style. Mm-hmm. She keeps the students on their toes. That's right. And one of the things that came out when we were talking about that, it's not a fluke, it's through a lot of hard work. Yep. This is something she's thought about a lot since law school, really. That's right. Where she saw her mentor yeah. uh, use a similar style and thought it was very effective and has kind of fine-tuned that and turned it into, as uh, Michaela talked about, kind of a, a production, like a fine-tuned production that's that right. is the class. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we also learned that she's a singer. She sang through law school and she still sings uh, in her free time. Yeah, a lot of interesting uh, stuff that came up. We talked about the Emoluments Clause. That's and, right. Uh, Disney. There's little Disney. Yeah, <laughs> for all you Disney lovers and <laughs> right. for you Emoluments lovers, you right. both be satisfied. Right. Um, yeah, a lot of great substance, a lot of great information about Professor Grove. It was a pleasure to speak with her, and we hope you enjoy. Yeah, stay tuned. Professor Grove, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're very happy to have you. I was just telling Professor Bellin that uh, there is nothing you don't know, and we have lots of questions for you, so we're really excited to have you here. Well, I look forward to it. (laughs) Um, Well, welcome, Professor Grove. Uh, You have been at William & Mary for a number of years, and I'm sure lots of our listeners have been lucky enough to take your class, but some of our listeners haven't, so we'd like to get to know you a little bit. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from, a little bit about your background? So I'm originally from uh, Kentucky and Virginia. I lived in Kentucky till I was 13 and then moved to Virginia. So I I count both, um, and that's why I'm still, despite having gone to Duke, a Kentucky basketball fan as well. Wow. So Duke and Kentucky are my top two favorite teams, which is a a hard, (laughs) a hard hard situation to be in, but it's true. Um, And and the March Madness in general right now is dead to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you're from Kentucky and Virginia. And you go to Duke. And what do you study at Duke? I studied, well, that's, that's actually a very good question. I majored in political science. Okay. Um, at Duke, it was very easy to major in something and take as few classes as possible in that subject. Oh, I love I've, that. I've learned a lot more about political science since I've been a law professor than I did in, in college. When I was in college, and this will not shock my students, I took almost exclusively constitutional law classes huh. in the political science department. Um, I did a senior thesis on French and American constitutional law. Uh, I took graduate level courses that were about constitutional law, which meant that I learned essentially nothing else about political science. Um, and I only needed to take think eight credits to have a major. Um, so I spent the rest of my college career taking other stuff that I thought was interesting. So I minored in French and Japanese. I also took some Spanish. Mm-hmm. I took a class on opera. Um, <laughs> I actually started out, I thought I was going to be a chemistry or math major. Mm-hmm. So I went all the way up to multivariable calculus in college <laughs> as well as chemistry courses. Oh my goodness. Um, so I actually have a really weird looking transcript for this reason. Wow. Weird looking or unbelievably impressive. Yeah, right. Hardcore. Wow, an encyclopedia, multivariable calculus. You just (laughs) happen to take that as well? I thought I needed it (laughs) for a chemistry major. As it turned out, I didn't. And and I actually think that there's 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 a great connection between 
aspects of math and the law. Hmm. I tell my students frequently that writing a brief or writing a memo is a lot like writing a geometry proof mm-hmm. um, or a calculus proof if you go if you go all that way because you've got to do it step by step. Every step has to follow from the previous step and you have to support your point each step of the way. That's exactly what we do in law. Yeah. I didn't do well in geometry. <laughs> Right. Maybe that's part of my right. problem. Does that help you? It when started you're saying, early. Like, yeah. This seems complicated, but now that I think about it as a differential equation, it like, all makes sense. You know what? It clicks for me. <laughs> it clicks for me. So, what did you study? Political science. Uh, oh, you studied right political science. This conversation. Oh, good. Yes, right. But did you also take any? I actually took a bunch of computer science classes, <laughs> and uh, one of the interesting things that was different about that was I remember the first mm-hmm. exam I got. It was like I had gotten a sixty out of a hundred. And I thought that was terrible, but it was actually one of the highest grades in the class, like because everything's yeah. curved, uh-huh. and, and I did, but I didn't realize that for a long time. Yeah. And I was like, "Wow, this I've is done so terribly." Awful. <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot more being wrong in those classes than I was used yeah. to. Uh, the other thing that I that I took um, and and wrote in was African American history. Oh, interesting. Which is something that is still of great interest to me. Um, so I, I kid you not, I just took a lot of a lot of things yeah. <laughs> that had very little to do with one another other than I thought they would be interesting and fun to take. How did you end up at law school from that? I wanted to be a lawyer when I was 11 years old. Wow. How did that occur um, to you? So my sixth grade English class did a trial of the third little pig. Mm-hmm. Um, this is true. <laughs> uh, and so it was a trial of the third little pig who was on trial for having killed the big bad wolf. Sure. And this was a particularly gory version of the story where... Wow. In um, sixth grade, no less. In sixth grade. Well, this was Kentucky. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, Kentucky has such a bad name. Um, so so in this story, the wolf had come down fr- down the chimney, and the, the, the pigs cooked him and ate him, which sure. is, is difficult when you're the pig's attorney. Right. <laughs> and you're trying to argue self-defense. And here I'm, I'm sitting next to Professor Bellin, who knows tremendous more about criminal sure. procedure than I do. Um, sure. Eating is a bad fact. Yeah, that's, that's a bad yeah, fact. <laughs> but, but, you know, it seemed like it, it, it might be problematic. Um, but I was, I, was the, I was on the pig's defense team, and we got the pig off. Wow. Wow. Um, on self-defense with the sixth grade jury. Yeah. Wow. The self-defense piece for the story works pretty well until the part where they're kind of celebrating and eating the, the wolf, which right. I don't remember. Is that actually is that a there, standard version of the story? I don't story? think so. I don't think so. <laughs> it sounds like Kentucky may have taken some liberties. Yeah. I was embarrassed to admit that I didn't recall that part of the story, but now I feel better that I brought that up. I out. think that's an additional fact. <laughs> so that, that moment. That taught you you wanted to be a lawyer. So I really wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and I, I also used to watch the Paper Chase TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, in reruns when I was when I was a little kid mm-hmm. in the in and this will date me but in the early 80s um, and I thought I, I really want to go I really want to go to law school wow the paper chase made you want to go to <laughs> law it school. made me want to it, no this was the TV show it was okay different. I, I didn't I've I only seen it. the movie I did not see the movie until I was about to start law school which okay. I always tell students not to do yeah because like, right. they're not a ringing endorsement of the experience it is mm-hmm. not but but on the TV show they were just students going okay. through the first the first three years now it's still a little weird for a, an elementary school kid to want to do that <laughs> uh, but but I did and um, so I knew I wanted to be a lawyer well before college and I thought about other things like we all we all do um, but my plan was to maybe major in chemistry and then go to law school when I started college and then when I took my first constitutional law class in um, in my sophomore year so I was 19 that's the moment when I decided I wanted to be a law professor
I, I knew going to law school that I wanted to be a law professor, which meant that when I was in law school, one of the things I did was not only watch my teachers in order to learn the law, but mm-hmm. also to watch their to pedagogy. Learn to learn teaching methods, um, right. and you know, and I, I, I really paid attention to how they taught each course, and even throughout law school, I was thinking about how to teach. Hmm. So that was helpful. The problem is that when you really know what you want to do, um, it became it becomes really problematic when people tell it, tell you it can't happen. Mm. Um, and yeah. I, I was told um, when I was in law school, after law school, when I did a fellowship, which is designed to put me, uh, put you, design it was designed to helped me that transition from the Department of Justice to, to legal academia, I was told, I don't know how many times, you will never get a job teaching federal courts. Huh. You will never get a job teaching constitutional law. So just you know, pick something else. Do corporations, anything else. Um, and you know, one thing I knew for sure was that I was not going to do corporations. Right. That, that was not going to happen. But it's very, um, it's very frustrating when you, you, you've dreamed of doing one thing mm-hmm. uh, for so many years. And I, I went to the Department of Justice knowing that I wanted to teach eventually mm-hmm. and to have people tell you you can't. Yeah. And what was the – just the, the field was so uh, in demand that it would be hard to find a spot? So, so primarily that there are just a lot of people who, who want to teach it. Um, now, I was fortunate that I had – a couple of mentors who did believe in me and did encourage me to go um, to go that route, and and I and I, I actually one of the things I try to do with students um, is offer that reassurance mm-hmm. that it can actually work out. Yeah. Even well, when boy, people were, boy, were people wrong about yeah? Whether you could you make showed it. them. Yeah. Look at you teaching not only constitutional law <laughs> but also federal courts, also civil procedure, and. Statutory interpretation, yeah. among other and courses. plus at the at the top of the field, you know, at like the top in, in of the field. It. Yeah, so. yeah. So they were wrong. Let's let's just get that out there. I mean, they'll they'll be listening and <laughs> yeah. regret at this point. Right, the that's podcast. right. <laughs> <laughs> this is we have vast. That <laughs> it's a it's a very broad listening community. Yeah, very very broad. Our reach is far. Well, to be fair, I think people people mean well. Right. They they don't want you to go after something that you just can't possibly work out. Um, but I thought also think it 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 speaks to the importance of mentoring. Absolutely. Um, and you, when you do have a mentor who believes in you, mm-hmm. and I and I was very very fortunate to have one, um, that that makes all the difference because I don't think any one of us can do any of this alone. Uh, we need people to guide us and people to support us. Yeah. Um, and I'm very very grateful that I got that support. Yeah. And so you mentioned mentorship and and observing closely your professors in law school can you talk to us a little bit about who those people were what you observed and what you took away with you to become the professor Tara Grove that you are today well this always feels a little weird to say now um, because she's very famous in in other ways but my my teaching mentor was now Senator Elizabeth Warren Mm. Um, when I when I went um, when I went to to Harvard as an admitted student she taught the the class for admitted students and i watched her and i thought this is the first time in my life i have seen a woman who is dynamic Mm. in control of a classroom Mm. and just absolutely brilliant and i thought i i want to be that person someday if if remotely possible um and i thought no matter what she teaches i'm going to take a class from her 
later on, I learned that she teaches, she taught <laughs> bankruptcy and right. secure transactions <laughs> and <laughs> contracts, and I thought I was going to vomit <laughs> <laughs> because th those were courses did I had. Did you follow through, though? Did you take some of these I classes? did indeed. I, I, I took bankruptcy. Uh -huh. um, I also audited her bankruptcy class when I was doing my fellowship to once again watch her teach and take notes and get ideas, um, and she was extraordinarily extraordinarily generous with her time. And one of the things I, I, I think people should realize about her, at the same time that she was mentoring me, this was 2008. Mm -hmm. Now, people may remember a couple things about 2008. This was sure. the, the year of the, the big stock market crash, the financial crisis. Elizabeth Warren was appointed to head um, the TARP, an organization that was designed to sort of investigate the financial crisis. So she was working with Congress. She was teaching a full load um, at, in law school. And as she put it, she had three jobs because she was also um, talking about potentially being in, in the next administration. And yet, she made time to have lunch with me once a month to sit and talk about teaching. She has been supportive since, since I was in law school, since I started law school in 1999, um, and continues wow. to be supportive of, of my career, even, even as a United States senator. And so Elizabeth Warren not only taught me about teaching methods, um, the Socratic method, getting a lot of people into the conversation, mm -hmm. um, but also taught me about being a teacher outside of the classroom. Someone, I, I believe that one of the most important things we do is mentor students and have our doors open, be available to answer questions from students, write recommendation letters for students, no matter how many times they ask, no matter how many times they change jobs, uh, because that's what Elizabeth Warren did for me. school, you go to the DOJ, to mm -hmm. the Department of Justice. Yes. Okay. Civil, civil Division Appellate Staff, okay. although we called it the Civil Appellate Staff. Yes. The Civil Appellate Staff. And how long were you there for? I was there for four years. And did you enjoy that work? Was it, did you feel as though you were applying exactly what you had learned in law school to the work that you did every day? Um, yes and yes. I absolutely loved it. I tell students today that I think I had one of the best jobs in the legal profession, and I would have stayed there for the rest of my career mm -hmm. had I not always wanted to be an academic. Mm -hmm. In fact, my first year there, I, I, I liked it so much, I said to my husband, you know, ma maybe I should just do <laughs> this and, and not go into teaching. And he looked at me and said, really? <laughs> <laughs> You've been talking about being a law professor for how many years now? So, so he, he, he brought me back to, back to reality. Uh, but it, it really was, it was a great, it was a great job. DOJ very much influenced the way that I teach. Um, it, when, I, when I first started teaching, the first class I taught, my very first semester, was federal courts. Mm. And as I was designing the course, I was trying to think to myself, why do I love this stuff? Um, despite the fact that a lot of people say, oh, it's just dry, it's procedure, it's not that interesting. Um, and you know, it pains me when people say that, but I know that that's, that's the view about courses like federal courts and civil procedure. And I thought, you know, I love it because I see it in terms of stories. Mm -hmm. it's, ne it's never just about procedure. And this is something that I try to tell my students. Jurisdiction is never just about jurisdiction. Procedure is never just about procedure. And I thought to myself, how can I get this across? And I, that's actually what led me to do problems. Now, this is something that I'd learned from Elizabeth Warren. She does problems in her, in her bankruptcy class. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, I had to do some major translation to get from bankruptcy to federal courts. Um, and so basically, I, when I first started teaching, I started writing problems hmm. each week. 
uh, for the next for for the next week of class, um, and I would I would use cases that I I had litigated or colleagues had litigated the Department of Justice. I would search Westlaw, and when I would search, um, and I, to this day I do this. I look for the facts that are gonna be the most heart-wrenching or the most exciting, that are gonna make people mad. It is hardest to make arguments when you just fundamentally disagree yeah. with what one side or the other is doing. Yeah. Um, that's why in federal courts we, we, we have a case involving the detention of American citizen who was, who was beaten thoroughly to figure out the scope of absolute and qualified immunity. Um, it's why I give you a, a free speech case about the Confederate flag. Um, in my civil procedure case, I use um, for forum nonconvenience in my civil procedure class, for forum nonconvenience, I, I use a case about a pharmaceutical company that used experimental drugs hmm. on kids in a foreign country without the knowledge of their parents, and some kids died. And I actually had a student one year say to me, Professor Grove, I can't fathom how to make arguments to say there's no jurisdiction over this company. And I said, you know, you have to, because the only way you win for those kids is to show, is to understand why the other, what the other side's arguments are and knock them down. Um, and so th my, my problems are my effort to bring procedure and jurisdiction to life. Mm -hmm. And, and make students really realize that all of these cases are about people. And, and it's important if you care about people to care about jurisdiction and procedure. Yeah. Yeah, that brought to life. I'm, I'm tearing up over here on <laughs> I the know. sideline. It's powerful what stories. I tell <laughs> How can you do that to those kids, Professor Grove? <laughs> Terrible of you. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little about um, how you run your class? I think it's, it's somewhat unique, and it sounds like it comes from Professor Warren. I mean, you can say no, but, um, I, you know, my understanding is there's, there's some uh, kind of cold calling that, that moves <laughs> quickly through the class and, like, wildfire. And so, I, you know, you guys know it's, more about it than I do, but talk yeah. about it. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll say this. It's an unbelievable experience to watch Professor Grove teach. Professor Grove has prepared, like, imagine the most entertaining television show, well-edited, well-produced Netflix documentary <laughs> on a single subject mm -hmm. with cutaways, with like unbelievable anecdotal interviews mm -hmm. from other people. She brings in a stack of notes with lots of different post-its and you're caught between like wanting to go on this ride with her and also fearing what's about to come <laughs> to you because every couple of minutes, and I'd, I would love to know how you do this, but every couple of minutes, Professor Grove will, like her eye contact will dart to the opposite side of the room and she'll call on like, Mr. Quinn Jacobs or Miss Edmondson. It's so fast. I don't know how you keep the substance clear as well as everybody's names. And by the way, she had all the names memorized, you know, the second, yes. the second we walked in. It's like you're clairvoyant well, let's, let's, and let's maybe a little out. spooky. Yeah, let's find out. Are what's you going a witch? On. Is it, is <laughs> <laughs> you could start with that, but explain. First how of you all, do this. are how you, you a witch? <laughs> Wow. Um, well, first of all, everything you just said means the world to me, because um, that I that I I, I I care tremendously about about teaching and, and and constantly think about it. So so a couple of things. Um, I think that there are many teaching methods that can be effective, um, and I think you have to find 
a teaching method that works for your personality. Um, and this is actually something that Elizabeth Warren taught she me. Does. Mm-hmm. You know, she, her method was cold calling. For some professors, um, some professors lecture. You know, there, there, there are lots of different methods. And in, in law school, as I was watching my professors, and as I said, I was doing this throughout law school, um, that was the method that called to me the most for a couple of reasons. Um, I felt like I learned the most in classes where, where professors called on me. Um, now, Elizabeth Warren was the only professor I had who did sort of what I call the popcorn method of yeah. calling in a couple of people. Um, but I felt like when I was when, when we were called on, I was I, I learned the most. Um, and I, and I, I will say, um, and I, I, I told students this one-on-one, but I was petrified yeah, as a law student a when, I, I when, I, when I was called on. Absolutely petrified. I remember sitting in Elizabeth Warren's class, and sometimes I would volunteer in the hopes that maybe she wouldn't call on me. <laughs> That's <laughs> my strategy. <laughs> I, I, I told her this once, and you know, years, years, years later, she, she was kind of annoyed. Uh, but, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, so does that work? Does volunteering get you off the hook? No. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. What a simple ploy. Yeah. yeah. No. Couldn't um, possibly work. And and obviously I know I know the 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 trick. Yeah. I, I, I used to try <laughs> to yeah, do you it. Pioneered it. Uh, um, but I was learning so much more. Yeah. And I was also, it was forcing me to be more confident in speaking in front of people. Um, and this is what I tell students in my classes. I want people. I want people to learn how to think and speak on their feet. Um, and that's. And that's one of the main reasons that I that I do what I do. Um, the other thing, and studies have shown, when professors do not call on students, there are many students in the room, um, particularly women, who do not volunteer as much as as other students. Mm. And I, you know, I, I've learned over the years that so many different people have so much to offer a class, and they're often people you don't hear from in other classes. And um, and so that's another reason that I try to call on as many people as possible. And the most heartwarming thing I, I have I have had told to me over the years of teaching um, from come from students who are shy as as I was, who say, you know, I was I was terrified yeah. at the beginning of the semester, but now I feel confident. Things like that are probably the single most meaningful thing that a teacher can hear. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what. Choked up. <laughs> this, this is the most uh, strangely emotional. <laughs> I'm getting very choked up. We're delighted to have you here because we have some legal issues we'd like to ask you about. And now we certainly yeah, we'll put you on the hot yeah, seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the first thing we wanted to ask you a little bit about was all this emoluments litigation. Can you briefly tell us what's going on with that? What are some of the arguments on both sides, and why is it tricky? Oh, wow. Okay, so the Emoluments Clause. Um, it, 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 this is a great provision of the Constitution that no one had ever heard of right. before January of 2017, but now we, we focus on it. Okay, so there are two provisions. Um, one is a domestic Emoluments Clause, and the other is a foreign Emoluments Clause. So the domestic Emoluments Clause basically says that the president should just get his salary, from the United States government, whatever the salary is, um, and nothing else, and shouldn't be getting additional money from other parts of the federal government or from states. And the Foreign Emoluments Clause says that the president shouldn't take gifts from foreign uh, foreign leaders, foreign governments, without the consent of Congress. 
And the idea of the foreign emoluments clause apparently came from um, a trip that Benjamin Franklin had to France during the Articles of Confederation, where the where the then king of France um, said, "Hey, Benjamin Franklin, would you would you like this gold snuff box?" <laughs> uh, apparently, gold snuff boxes were a thing, and that <laughs> that um, Louis the Fourteenth. I almost said Louis XIV. <laughs> uh, this, this is a problem we're having, having taken French. <laughs> I have trouble. It's okay. We're, we're have a yeah, sophisticated please. audience. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So Louis XIV um, gave this gold snuff box to Ben Franklin, and Ben Franklin came back and told the Continental Congress, you know, I, I got this thing, and I don't, sh- should I keep it? Um, and they said, yeah, yeah, you can keep it. We, we trust that we trust that you weren't doing things uh, just for favors. Um, and that led to the Emoluments Clause that, you shouldn't, that we don't want our, our federal officials getting stuff from foreign governments uh, without anyone knowing about it, but as long as you tell Congress and Congress is okay with it, it's all good. So that's, that's the substance. Okay. Um, and this has come up during the Trump administration because President Trump, people think, is actually getting stuff from foreign governments um, and maybe also from, from state governments without asking for the consent of Congress. So with President Trump, it's very different from a gold snuff box. Uh, President Trump, as as most people know, owns a ton of hotels um, and casinos and other things around the country. And he has said that he has separated himself from his businesses by handing his businesses over to his sons. Um, Some people say that that is not true, Mm. uh, that the president is still very much involved in his businesses. And what's happening is foreign leaders are coming over to this country and choosing to stay at the president's hotels mm-hmm. um, and at other hotels in the hopes of getting getting Crane some favors favorite. from the president. Mm-hmm. Um, so in one compl- in one of the one one of the complaints in the litigation, they they quote a Middle, Middle Eastern diplomat as saying. Believe me, all the delegations will go to the Trump International Hotel. Um, an Asian diplomat is saying, quote, wouldn't, why wouldn't I stay at his hotel blocks from the White House so I can tell the new president, I love your new hotel. Isn't it rude to come to his city and say, I'm staying at your competitor? So these are in press accounts. We don't know if these statements were made, but um, this has led people to think, you know, foreign leaders are coming to the United States. Um, offering business to Trump hotels, which can help the president. Um, and in return, the fear is that the president might be doing some kind of quid pro quo. Mm-hmm. So um, do we, making nice with China or not making nice with China, depending on whether the Chinese um, Chinese folks stay at his hotels um, or grant him, him other favors. Um, and so this is, this is a huge concern. Um, and so there are several lawsuits that have been filed about the Foreign Emoluments Clause. With the domestic emoluments clause, it's a little more complicated to figure out, but the idea appears to be that states are giving special tax benefits and other special treatment to the Trump hotels that are in their states um, and making other states feel like they need to give special benefits. And there's also some, um, some, some arguments related to the Trump International Hotel in, in downtown Washington, D.C. So prior to President Trump's presidency, um, the General Services Administration, the GSA, the agency within the federal government that handles contracts, it had a contract that said no official in the United States government can be involved in the what is now the Trump Hotel property. Um, and so it looked like as soon as President Trump took office, just the existence of the Trump International Hotel violated that contract. Mm. But the GSA said, oh, that's okay. 
um, and ultimately changed the contract to say, no problem, um, you can allow federal officials. And this is arguably an emolument um, additional payment on top of what the president gets from the Treasury because he's basically making more money from the GSA, um, allowing him out of the contract, out of that contractual provision. So which, uh, which of these suits, I, I know there was news recently and mm -hmm. I thought of you because it had to do with standing. I mean, so can you, is that kind of the one that's most far along or most likely to be a problem? So it, it's hard to know for sure. There, there are three different lawsuits. Um, one is by a private, a private group um, and, and also brought by some competitors who, who own hotels. Another is brought by states, uh, the state of Maryland and Washington, D.C., and the third is brought by 196 federal legislators. Hmm. Um, so the federal legislator suit, to my knowledge, there's been, there haven't been any judicial decisions there, um, so that one's still very much pending. Um, the, the private lawsuit was thrown out on standing grounds by a, by a federal court in New York, and just yesterday, okay. uh, a federal court, um, a federal court more locally, said that Maryland and Washington D.C. do have standing to bring some of the challenges to to Trump's act activities that are alleged to violate the Emoluments Clause. Uh, what the district court found is that both Maryland and D.C. can challenge. Um, the activities related to the Trump International Hotel in DC for a couple of reasons. DC and Maryland both own competing hotels or conference centers. Um, and the idea is that to the extent foreign leaders go to Trump's International Hotel, um, then they're not going to, to the DC owned and Maryland owned conference centers um, and hotels. And so that's a proprietary interest, actually looks like a dollars and cents injury that's often good enough for standing doctrine. Um, and the, the court also held that they have kind of a quasi-sovereign interest um, in not competing with other states. So this goes back to the idea that some states are giving the Trump Trump hotels special deals um, in Maryland and D.C. Are, are injured to the extent that they, are, they feel pressure to offer the same deals. And the court also granted what's known as parents patrie standing, um, where Maryland and D.C. are allowed to sue on behalf of their citizens. The idea appears to be, in the district court's opinion, that um, D.C. and Maryland can sue on behalf of the hotels and restaurants, that the private hotels and restaurants that are also competing with the Trump International Hotel. And so to that extent, standing was granted. What the district court rejected was standing to challenge a lot of the other stuff um, that President Trump has been doing. For example, foreign leaders or state officials start staying at his Mar-a-Lago hotel in Florida. Um, China granted President Trump a bunch of trademarks that he'd been asking for, or tr granted the Trump organization a bunch of trademarks that they had been asking that had been asking for for years, um, and that people have alleged that's also a uh -huh. a gift with a potential quid pro quo. Uh, the court felt found that the Maryland and D.C. can't challenge those. they're not really competing with Mar-a-Lago or these right. trademarks. Interesting. So it's a less direct and injury. And so this is just a decision that they can go forward with the suit, not a decision on the merits of the emoluments clause issue. That's right. And, and actually, there are, there are about a million, a million things that have to happen between, um, between now and <laughs> the merits um, that could, could, potentially, could potentially gummy up the works. Th this depending makes on you want to go back to civil appellate <laughs> and, and roll up your sleeves and get into the procedure here? 
this case will be at my old office for sure. It's right now at the federal programs branch. Um, I, it's actually wonderful for teaching. I, I tell my students, whatever else you think about the Trump administration, it is the gift that keeps on giving That's when right. it comes to federal court federal courts issues. And, and it is. I mean, um, so the Emoluments Clause litigation, this is why I'm so fascinated by it. It's, it's, as, it's like our entire course wrapped into one case. Wow. Yeah. Um, so this issue was standing in this opinion. At the very end of the opinion, the district court also said um, the emoluments clause is not a political question. So the court actually ruled on both standing and the political question. Um, but that's that's not the end of it. Even if you get past standing and the political question doctrine, um, you've got what's known as the absolute immunity of presidents. Mm. Presidents are not supposed to be sued right. for stuff that they do while president. Um, in a case called, in, in a case that arose during the Clinton administration, the Supreme Court said that President Clinton could be sued about stuff that happened before he was president. Um, but there, there's case law saying that presidents can't be sued um, for an injunction or damages for anything related to their official duties. Um, and I was reading through the district court's opinion here, and it's got some really interesting stuff um, suggesting that the president's the, the president's gifts from these foreign leaders, or what are arguably gifts, um, foreign leaders staying at his hotels have nothing whatsoever to do with his official duties. Mm. Oh, interesting. Which to is get around this bar to suing, you think? Maybe. The district uh -huh. court explicitly says, I'm not ruling on any of that stuff. Mm. Um, so so it, it's, it'll be... It's, it's, It'll be interesting to see what the court does with the absolute immunity argument. Um, and as my federal court students well know, there's also fights about whether the president should be sued in his personal capacity as mm -hmm. an individual or in his official capacity um, and what that might mean. And that's all before you get to the merits. Right. And it seems like there'd be a difficult remedy problem at the end because what happens next, obviously you can't, I mean, there's only so much the court could do. It seems like it would be a kind of a fairly minor remedy to this if anything. It's, it's really hard to know um, if the court, can a court actually enjoin a sitting president? Right. Um, and that relates to the absolute immunity problem, but it's also just, there, there, there are cases saying that federal courts can't enjoin the president. Yeah. And how that would even work, could a, pre could a court not only issue the injunction, but hold a president in contempt, right. contempt of court if the president didn't comply with the injunction, how, how would the court figure that out? Right. Um, so these are all huge problems. And just on, on the merits, it's, it's hard to say whether this counts as an emolument under our constitutional scheme. Um, so when foreign, leaders, when foreign leaders are staying at the president's hotels, they're paying money. Yeah. So arguably, this is just um, people paying for services that they get. Um, and that's very, very different from Ben Franklin just getting a gold snuff yeah. box. Almost from mean, they'd have to right. be like, oh, it, the room costs $200. Well, here's $600. Right? You'd almost need like something right. like that to show that this is a bribe or a gift beyond the, the room rate. Right. So, so if, if they did that, it would look much more like an emolument. Yeah. I think the theory is that just staying at the hotel when you wouldn't otherwise have right. is a huge mm -hmm. benefit to the president. Um, that might be in exchange for some kind of favors from the president. And there are, there are a couple of instances where uh, foreign, foreign delegations actually did move their, uh, move their meetings from, say, the Four Seasons to the Trump International Hotel. So one could say that that's, a, that's still a benefit, even if you're paying for the services. But it's just very, very different from what we've seen before. And the idea of, you know, 
special tax benefits or special contract benefits um, for the domestic emoluments clause, that's also very, very far afield from a state just paying the president cold, hard cash on, on top of his official salary. And you know, does that count? Can we yeah. even tell why states give certain benefits? And plus this complication that he's saying he's not even connected with the Trump organization at this point. So it seems like a long way to go before anything definitive. Plus there'd be appeals where the civil appellate people would get in. And, uh, yeah. And it's, I, I will also say, we, my fed, federal courts class was talking about this the other day. Um, it's interesting that the Department of Justice is defending the president in these lawsuits. Um, because that suggests that they do view it as part of his official duties. Mm-hmm. This this case is one of the most fascinating cases I have ever seen, um, and it's also kind of a headache yeah. uh, as, as you get into it and see all of the all of the issues. Yeah. Oh, there's a game. game, right? We have a game for you. Yeah. Would you like to play a game? <laughs> she has to, just like in her class. That's right. <laughs> That's right. These are our rules. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm being called on. <laughs> exactly. Okay, we have a game. You mentioned in class that you love Disney. Okay. She's nodding her head. Just let She's the record reflect. She's nodding her head. It's an old yes. trick. You can't let him get away with the nod. you got to get it on the record. So Excellent. there was an affirmative nod. Let the record reflect. We've taken judicial notice <laughs> of it. Okay. So you love Disney. Here's a game that we like to call. Is this a Supreme Court case name? or an obscure Disney character, Uh, and you have to decide. Now, Professor Bellin has come up with the format of some of these games, and he has one rule, and that is you can't think too long. Okay? So you got to go with whatever your gut says. All right, number one. Is this a Supreme Court case name or an obscure Disney character? Number one, Aladdin. He's not an obscure Disney character. (laughs) He's a very well-known Disney character. Don't fight the hypo, Professor Grove. All right, you do the next one. Okay. Baloo Bear. Baloo is also a famous Disney character. Great. Okay. All right. She well, knows. don't get don't get don't get cocky over there. Okay. Yeah, we start easy. We start easy. <laughs> kind of like your class, right? I'm you have no some, idea how much my s- husband quizzes me on Disney, although not <laughs> mostly about the parks, not the characters. Oh, really? Plus yeah. the, the, we should have raised the difficulty level on this quiz. It looks like. Oh, well, just right, relax. Next is <laughs> it's coming. Next is Chevron. <laughs> that is a Supreme Court case. You Great. can see why I was a little nervous. That one was coming. Roper. That's also a Supreme Court case. Markowski. That's also a Supreme Court case. Oh. That we... S- could be. Is it? <laughs> it could be. Go on. Explain. Oh, I'm wrong? Well... <laughs> according to the sheet I'm looking according at. According to okay, Wikipedia, okay. it's also from Wreck-It Ralph. Okay. Yeah, the but what's... Tell me about name, Markowski. Like, who knows? Um, so I, I, I could be wrong. So that's, that's fine. We know you're not. Go ahead. Yeah, the sad thing is she's probably right. All you're right, let's go on. Okay. Okay. What about Mungo? Mungo does sound like a Disney character. Name. <laughs> it's from Tarzan. Yeah. yeah. Nice. So Wreck-It Ralph and Tarzan are two that I haven't seen. <laughs> All right, let's go on. <laughs> Next. Nuka. Disney. And last one, Egelhoff. That is a Supreme Court case. Nailed it. <laughs> You're the smartest person I know, Professor Grove. Professor Grove, one last question. Is there anything you think our listeners should know about what's happening in the federal judiciary right now? Is there something that's plaguing you that you just have to get off your chest? So, um, wow, that's a, that's, that's a tough question. I think what worries me right now the most is the extent to which people are relying on the federal judiciary to fix everything that they believe ails us. 
So this is, and this this happened during, started during the Obama administration, has really been happening the last 10 or 15 years, but it's um, picked up since January of 2017. Every major issue out there, whether it's the travel ban, um, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, the environment, the Affordable Care Act, um, the Emoluments Clause, all of these things are immediately going to court. Yeah. And there's a significant, um, th there's far, far less reliance on the political process. And that bothers me from, from two areas. I, I, I feel like people, are, people have lost faith in the political process as, as a way of solving problems um, at the same time that they are pushing and pushing the federal judiciary to solve as many controversial issues as humanly possible. And I understand why. I understand why there there's a, a lack of faith in, in Congress um, and a reliance on the judiciary. It seems like the federal courts work and, right. and nobody else does. Right. But the reality is our, our institutions only work as well as, only work to the extent that we believe in them. Um, to the extent we start believing in Congress as a functioning institution, it, I believe it will actually start working better. And I think that's one of the reasons hmm. federal courts do work. That's we think that when a, when a judge puts on a robe, that means something, and that means the judge, um, even and w even understanding that judges are, are motivated by ideological concerns, when a judge puts on a robe, we believe that there's an obligation to decide a case fairly and evenly without concern for the particular parties before, before the judge, and I think that judges feel that when they put on that robe. If we have the same expectation of legislators, I think that it could help tremendously. And, and if you think, mm. why does somebody run for Congress? Right. Nobody, and, and lots, of, lots of new people are running for Congress right now. Nobody runs for Congress because they want gridlock. Right. They run for, they run for Congress because they want to do something. And I think we, if we hold on to that belief, that assumption about the congressional role and talk about it, that will actually start to change our, our view of Congress as a whole. And I'll say one last thing. I think this matters tremendously because we can only have a functioning and independent judiciary to the extent that other institutions are willing to listen to it. And the reality is an independent judiciary cannot save a political system because an independent judiciary can only exist when there is a functioning political system. Good ending. I think we should not say anything, right? Let's let's stop there. Yeah. This is how you feel every time you leave her class, where right. you're just like, the world is illuminated. Right. You're like, did someone get that? Someone write did that I, down? How do I? How did she come up with that? Nice. Professor Grove, thank you so much for donating your time to us today. Well, we thank you guys very much. This is this is quite illuminating. And I I, I learned about D the Disney <laughs> Supreme Court case. Yeah. Name. See, I we have things to teach you too. <laughs> That's our podcast with Professor Grove. Yeah, who proved she is she is a sorcerer. She <laughs> she is a witch. Yeah, well, the the magic of her, her uh, able to pull together the class and and her work and all her scholarship is that she works she's really hard. She's superhuman. She's amazing. She she's, works really hard. She's been thinking about this stuff for years. Yeah, she's an expert and she brings that to everything she does. That's right. Including the podcast, she had her notes and she was 
ready to talk about some really difficult substantive stuff and, and didn't miss a beat. On not, not a beat. And I, and I have to say, it made me want to be a better podcast host. <laughs> right. We should all prepare as we, much as Professor Grove does. We should all prepare as much as Professor yeah. Grove Although does. Although we did strip her up on the Disney quiz a little bit. There was some things that were hard. Yeah. Even for her. Even for Professor Grove. <laughs> she probably just put on the act just to make us feel good. <laughs> right. She's <laughs> like, I have to make pretend I can't do something. That's right. That's so right. Or they'll get maybe, on to me. Maybe one of these Disney <laughs> questions I could kind of flub, make yeah. them feel better. So thanks to Professor Grove for being on. And uh, next week, we have a really interesting lineup telling us about uh, our, our, technology. All basically. sorts of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So Artificial intelligence and the law. It's going to be great. So we hope to uh, catch your ear then. Yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs>